Welcome to the EO Podcast, where we amplify and celebrate all forms of employee ownership. Hello, my friends. Thank you for listening. My name is Brett Kiesling, and as it says on my business cards, I'm a passionate advocate for employee ownership. We have a great guest for you on the podcast. I'll be joined by Tracy Till, who's a co-founder of Butler Till. She's also the former co-CEO and former vice chair and chairperson of the board of directors. She's an advisor for Certified EO, and she's also the national co-chair of the marketing committee for the Private Directors Association. She serves as an independent board member on an ESOP company, and she's available as an independent board member for EO and non-EO companies alike. Before we start, last week on our Friday minicast, episode 120, our guest was Yvette Torres of NCO. She described NCO's National Virtual Annual Conference, which takes place in April 2021. I'm registered for the conference, and I hope you will too. On the minicast, I share an exclusive discount code that will save $25 on conference registration for podcast listeners. You can find episode 120 of our minicast at www.esoppodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tracy Till. I'm very pleased to be joined on the podcast today by Tracy Till. Tracy, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. Tracy, I'm very excited that you're on the podcast. You're going to be here wearing several different hats. You're actually one of the co-founders of Butler Till. That's a pretty well-known employee-owned company, aren't you? Thank you. Yes, I am. That's a very nice thought. And you serve as an independent board member, and you're the national co-chair of marketing for the Private Directors Association. So you have a lot of thoughts. Uh, one of your hats today is as an independent board member. I do. I'm a promoter of uh, great board members, yes. And Tracy, you have a um, renewed interest, but you've gotten very active with a couple of employee-owned organizations, supporting organizations. You're an advisor for certified EO, and you said in an email, probably my favorite line ever, you run with the EOX crew. So you're involved (laughs) in the organizations, and uh, we're going to put that hat on as well. Uh, So for people who are listening, we're going to hear a little bit about Butler Till. We're going to talk about independent board members, and we're going to get your thought about uh, how we grow employee ownership. Is that all right? Cool, cool. In the in the um, hockey world, they call that a hat trick. So let's do it. All right. And we're going to start, and I don't know what the pre-hat trick is, but we're going to start, as you know, we've been collecting on the podcast since the fall what we call the EO aha moment. It's that moment where something happened, not that you liked an ESOP or whatever, but you said, aha, this is transformative. Let me ask, have you had such a moment or moments? I've had several. Um, The first one I had was when my business partner um, said she wanted to retire in in a planful, mindful way and came in and said, let's let's plan our retirement. And our CEO said you could private sell, you could merger an acquisition type sell, or there's this thing called an ESOP. That was an aha moment. The other one was really recently one of the gentlemen I had worked in my career for, with, alongside with, uh, for years, joined us at Butler Till at one point, and he actually uh, retired recently with a sizable, and I won't share the number, but a sizable number of uh, stock value 
in addition to his 401k that enabled him to be a stay-at-home dad. That's an aha moment for me. Can I ask, when you say stay-at-home dad, uh, my children are in their 20s. Being a stay-at-home dad would not be impressive. He's relatively young with a sizable retirement? No, he just married a young girl. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and children later in life. You are not alone for a lot of people. And what I love we see throughout the, the employee-owned companies is it is getting the money. And for some people, it's like your colleague, he got the money. But for everybody else to see that somebody got that, you've uh, shared an aha moment that a lot of people understand. Yeah, you know, and that and it's not so much about the greediness of money, you know, the greenery of money, if you will, but it's what it enables you to do at a pace or in a, in a time frame that probably most people never would have considered. So it's a huge blessing. It absolutely is. Now let's circle back. Uh, you and Sue Butler founded Butler Till and just give us the uh, highlight of Butler Till's story, including any milestones related to becoming an ESOP. Sure. Sue and I started the company um, in 1998 um, out of her living room, believe it or not. There was two of us with um, a woman who is still at Butler Till today. So can you imagine what her ESOP package will look like eventually? And we grew the business trying to ensure that we provided the best caliber product whatsoever with the best service model whatsoever in the media and communications industry. Um, we did that with uh, working with both corporate accounts and other age, uh, ad agencies around uh, our area. And I think the biggest, the biggest growth and storytelling that comes to mind is the number of locations we had. Because with each location, we realized that our business was growing. We were adding accounts, adding volume, adding people, and ultimately got to a point where we were in this beautiful home in Rochester, New York, and occupying more space than, than we should be. And we had to move and we had to grow again. So we built out a huge space and we moved there right around the time we did our second transaction. And today we are building a five-story building downtown in Rochester, New York to house Butler Till. It's the Butler Till building. So those are huge milestones with Butler Till and how we grew. We went from, as I said, two employees to 50 and then 75 and then 100. And now we're at 175. The growth has been steady, has been phenomenal. And the ESOP model with our culture was a perfect fit. I hear that a lot. And I've said a lot, my partner and I's trustees uh, used to say a lot, ESOPs won't make a bad company a good company, That's but true. it can make a really good company a great company. And Butler Till does seem to be one of those that had the ESOP, the employee-owned vibe before it became employee-owned. Yeah, I think so too. And I, we always talked about the reality that when you work in any profession, but when you work and you, and you love what you do, you recognize pretty early on that you're there a good chunk of time, probably more so than you are with your family, unfortunately in our world, but that's the truth. And given that we always wanted to have the environment portray those values and those, you know, understandings and those, you know, nodding of the heads to say, your child's sick, go home. Or, you know, I know you'll put in the time because you have a doctor's appointment and now you want to come back. I get it. You know, you're going to be good to each other. So that value 
was throughout the organization. I think most ESOPs, that's a foundational piece to an ESOP, right? To say, we trust you, we value you, and please reciprocate that. That works. And again, it's cool that that's a lot of the fight that we have when companies transition to employee ownership if there's no ownership culture whatsoever. And what you have described is that ownership culture, and it's just really cool to see it bear out. You said in your aha moment that Sue Butler came to you and said, hey, it's time to figure out an exit strategy. That's also, you know, obviously key to what everybody's doing. So tell us a little bit about how that came about and how the ESOP came about. And what year was that? Okay, uh, in 20, I'll say 2010, 20, yeah, 2010, Sue Butler came into my office and, you know, here I am working on this critical plan for a big account and I'm, I'm in it. My nose is down on my desk. I'm in it. <clears throat> and she knocks on the door and she's very soft spoken and I'm not. Mm-hmm. She said, you know, Trace, can you got a minute? And I said, no, I don't have a minute, but come on in. And she said, I really want to talk about, you know, what about retirement? And I, I was in my young 40s at the time. And I thought to myself, she has lost her ever love and mind. But I knew she wasn't going to leave my office because she's persistent like that. And she's very plan oriented, which I love. And she suggested that, you know, would I be interested in staying on after her or as partners, would I leave with her? And I said, I would absolutely, without a doubt, leave with you. It's just who I am. So she said, then we have to think about this. And we sat down and we talked about all the models. How do you exit successfully? Our children didn't want the business. Um, We didn't have a ready at our door knocking to say, hey, we want to buy you. But we'd created a pretty good reputation. I think we knew that that was a model that we could have considered. We broached the topic with our CFO. And thank God she is a inquisitive Google searching kind of gal. And came back the very next day and said, you know, I think you guys should look at this ESOP thing. So we did. We looked at it. We all Googled it. We all, you know, came back the next weekend, if you will, after on Monday and sat down and talked about it. And we said, well, in true Butler Till fashion, Sue and I are never going to do anything unless we really research it. So we contacted a couple individuals in the Rochester marketplace and who were very vested in the ESOP world. And we read books, we entertained discussions. And there was no doubt in my mind after I read what was on Google and what I read within one of the books that there was no other option. Just for listeners who may not know, Rochester is robust in the ESOP market. Back when I was a trustee, we we worked with a lot of service providers up there. Empire Valuation, I, yeah. uh, I don't know if they're based there, but certainly yes. have a big office there. The folks, uh, Rob Schatz and Rob Brown and Rich Glassman, I've done a ton of work with both of those firms. But so people who don't listening, you happen to be in Rochester and... No, yeah. so we are 150% blessed, thank God, by Rob Brown because ESOP Plus, which Rob is a partner, obviously, and he is the most uh, genuine human being you'll ever meet. Very well-spoken, very educated, very human, just a phenomenal guy who won me over by the first bow tie that I saw, because <laughs> I'm tonically going to wear a bow tie. Hugh Woodside, our valuation uh, team at the time, was really cool. I mean, he was very interested in what we did and how we did it, and 
embraced how we shared our modeling with them and our valuation, why we, why our numbers were the way they were. We were very collaborative with one another. We almost put on a presentation for Hugh every time he came each year because we felt so passionate about what it was we did that we wanted to make sure he knew it all. That's and, great. Uh, That's great. He was a, he was a partner in that. So. And Tracy, let me just point out again for the listeners, um, we said very nice things about ESOP Plus and Empire Valuation. The point is there are talented advisors all around the company. And one of the key things that, that I, I assume you'd agree with is make sure that you are getting folks who are the real deal, that understand ESOPs and have been a big experience. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's important, as important to have somebody with a personality that you can can live with and that you can can enjoy working alongside because you will spend a great deal of time, especially that first year, uh, really getting into what it is about an ESOP and, and how it's going to work and all the communications elements, the legal requirements. It, it seems overwhelming at first, but I think with any good partner, you feel confident and you feel cared for. And that's important. Very, very good uh, sounding boards for us as we grew. In the last couple of years as an ESOP trustee, we'd often put in uh, independent board members as a uh, term of the transaction. In, in other words, we we thought it was so important, and I think that's the trend that is going on now. But when you formed the NESOP, I, I don't believe independent board members were required. Did you have them, or how did you start? And and we can transition to. And yeah. let me just say, people should check out the Butler Till website. You guys are doing very cool things. I've been there, and uh, I even saw some news articles about your uh, proposed building, and and that's very cool. So check out the Butler Till web website. Great story. But talk a little bit how you started to get how the board came up and when you started adding independent board members and everything that means. Yeah. So with with your ESOP, you're obligated really to have that board and to have a trustee and to have all those um, important, I think, guides and um, boundaries to make sure you're functioning well as an employee owned company. With that, our first board kind of traditional board modeling was really about us, Sue and I and our three leadership teams. So it was that five person group. So reality is the first year, the second year, not a lot changed except Sue and I weren't in you know, the roles we played, but we were there at the office. And it was very much practitioner-based board governance, very much you know, by the book. We didn't know what the hell we were doing, but we did it well and we did it right and we were clear. However, at one point, I got frustrated with the board assessment, annual assessment. And I looked at it and I thought to myself, man, you know, this is kind of boring. Aren't we supposed to be better than this? (laughs) So we looked at that and then we looked at how we could advance from a traditional board, very fiduciary responsibility board to a strategic board. So, okay, now let's talk about growing this business and stepping out of the day-to-day and truly functioning as chair and co-chair or vice chair. And when we did that and we looked at our strategic plan, which we took time to really articulate and put down on paper and get it right, we realized that adding independent board members was a way for us to gain momentum 
and movement and success a hell of a lot faster than had we stayed a traditional board. So with that, we hired um, some independent board members. When you talked about the board originally having that fiduciary function, fundamentally that means formally signing off on management decisions. It's it's uh, kind of a rubber stamp board, if I'm saying that right. And, and just so people understand what the fiduciary board, that's how many of them are. And before you become employee-owned, if Butler Till had a board with you and sue his partners, there were probably just documents you signed at your lawyer's office without having board meetings. So that's what we mean by the fiduciary just doing the guidelines. When I interrupted, and I apologize, you were about to talk about hiring independent board members. So do that and also explain the fact that you hired them caught my ear. We knew that with our strategic plan, the hiring of independent board members would up our game, would enable success far faster than, and and far more intelligently, by the way, than had we just done it with ourselves. So what we looked to do was to bring on someone who had our client's voice, for sure, because who better than us to think about than our clients? We brought on someone who could really focus on our people because we are so people focused. So upping our HR, if you will. We also looked at bringing on someone who had a larger agency skill set than we did and wanted that kind of aspirational influence to our thinking. When you do that and you suggest that this this is a role that's important to us as a company, of course you will compensate them for their service. There's no doubt in my mind that they were valuable. There's no doubt in my mind that it truly did elevate our thinking and enabled greater mentoring to our internal staff. It brought ideas and challenges and just continual improvement to our life. So that was the first foray, if you will, into that direction. Over the last three or four years, however, we recognized that a a few of those individuals in which we brought on the board were amazing people and so good to us and so talented, but we had somewhat outgrown them with our needs from our strategic plan perspective. I think that's important to note. Your strategic plan is supposed to evolve, and sometimes you're going to hit your milestones faster especially in today's day and age. Well, we had. So what we did was we decided to bring on someone who had far more discipline in the ESOP world so that we could have someone 100% focused on the aesthetics and the demands of an ESOP to be the best you can possibly be, who could focus on that for us as a board versus all of us trying to focus on it at once. So we brought a specialist in and that was a game changer. We decided to uh, relinquish our um, term and agreement with the gentleman who was on board for his knowledge in running a bigger agency. And we decided to bring in somebody who had a, a media agency discipline and who was just retiring. So it was a really capitalizing on that talent. And then we brought on a MarTech specialist, someone who's involved with marketing and technology and really confused that inside our organization. So again, those were transformational hires from a board's perspective. They weren't the day-to-day. They weren't just a fiduciary sign it, 
kiss it, get it off the table. Um, we had strategic offsites. We had really devoted time frame. We assigned each individual to a senior leader within the organization for mentoring. There was a greater integration of those talents into our business model that really required us to change our mind again about compensation. Because when you up the game on the talent in which you bring in, you need to compensate them well, fairly, for the work in which they do. Not every company needs that. There are probably some great experienced boards out there that can get by with just being fiduciary, very traditional. That's okay. But there's some out there who want to be strategic and want help. And there's others that are transforming their, their boards like crazy. Talk about if you can, diversity generally in the board, because I think that a lot of people um, misunderstand diversity and either narrow it uh, too much or expand it. When we talk about diversity, all different fields, as well as women on the board, people of color, can you explain why all the voices help add to a board? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the biggest... Um, misuses that goes on in the board world for companies, um, I would suggest ESOPs for sure, is the fact that diversity should be from all walks within your organization. So a footprint, if your footprint is, um, you know, diverse and it should be inspired by that, it should be inspired by your community, it should be inspired by what's right in terms of many voices, many thoughts. Um, and, you know, and my latest, my latest rant is with the fact that private companies are not obligated to have 20% of their board fitting a diversity profile. So whether or not that's ethnic, whether or not that's sex, whether or not, whatever that is. But we should. Every good board needs voices that affect your client base, affect your community, and give consideration to all people in all different shapes and sizes. Butler Till specifically is working as a WBENC. You and I talked about that briefly. We have that um, certification on a U.S. basis. And with that, we have an obligation. For those who are listening, I'm sorry, could you tell us WBENC, what it stands for? Yeah, women business um, enterprises in terms of being a certified supplier for corporations across the United States globally too. When you are a female certified supplier, obviously um, the government requires certain companies to work with diverse suppliers. And as a woman-owned business, um, we qualify for that. Now as a ESOP and a WBENC, we're hyper in tune with our senior leader, our CEO must be a female. Our chairman must be a female. The percentage of our audience in terms of our employee ownership must be um, dominantly female. So in that percentage skew. And then again, being a B Corp, I mean, diversity on a B Corp basis. So B Corp is looking at your community and what's good for, for the world and what's good for your community and your people. Those are certainly some positives, but yeah, the footprint of your board should and can be so dynamic and so relevant to today's world and what's needed. 
Now, you're the National Co-Chair of Marketing for the Private Directors Association. Talk a little bit about their work, if you will, and how it supports what you're doing, but just expand a little bit on the organization. Sure. Um, The PDA is a organization, um, nonprofit, that is 100% focused on private companies. So family-owned ESOPs, private equity, general business corporations um, that currently desire or are forming boards or who has a board, as well as individuals who are serving as independent board members um, for firms such as that. It's also some partnerships, some legal teams, some CPAs, others that have influence and and desire to work with boards as members. Um, They have chapters all across the United States. Their mission is to educate and elevate great board governance and create a network so that you can rely on and, and chat with others like you to become better. So with that, I've devoted some time to help them. They're going to be rebranding and coming out with some new tools. Before we segue over, Tracy, I've dealt as a trustee with compensating board members. Mm-hmm. You're the first person, and, and I am fine with that, and I understand it. I don't know that I've heard anybody refer to board members as strategic hires before. That's a completely different mindset. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? You know, I never looked at a board being created just because. I think if you're going to go for to create a board, you better best have the damn best board you've ever come up with in your life. And especially as an employee-owned company, I want to make sure I have the best darn board list out there. Because my board, my employees, my fellow owners, i got to report to this. I've got to report to them and tell them. So, yeah, I think... I think they are strategic hires. And I think when you look at it from that perspective, it changes your future and your inspiration and how you can move forward. When we spoke last week prior to this episode and just to get to know each other, you uh, described the ideal board members as being treated as consultants. And that, again, I hadn't heard, but it's taking all of that expertise and everything that they do and putting them to work. And I absolutely love that. Yeah. Thank you. I don't think you can have an ego. You can't have an ego when you're looking to create your board. You can't. You have to have what's right for the corporation. Talking about you for just a moment, you serve as an independent board member for a company. You're available to serve. And certainly through your work with the PDA, it's a passion for you. So someone like yourself A, you bring ESOP experience, you bring CEO experience, you bring marketing experience, you bring federal contracting rules experience with the uh, certifications. If someone were interested in talking to you, uh, and and you're a powerful voice for the role of the board anyway, so you could help transform for a company who's trying to get down this path. If someone wanted to reach out, is that something that they could do? or, Or how would someone reach out to you or someone like you about independent board members. Absolutely. I think, you know, I think LinkedIn is a beautiful social network for all of us in this professional realm. So please hit me up on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to connect with people. Um, Let me know that you heard about me from the show. That would be helpful. Um, I'll report back because I love measurement. (laughs) I I appreciate it. (laughs) Of course. And I would encourage people to look 
outside of their industries and look at something like the PDA as an example, or look at something where people can find talent that fits a certain requirement or need. Um, there are several entities out there. Some are more regional, some are national. But yeah, I think, you know, if you're going to up your game, up it on the board level, it will change your business. I guess I've looked at the importance of the board, but you gave new perspective to the value of the board. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Tracy, you are running with the EOX crew, as I said earlier. You're an advisor for Certified EO. I, I just love that. It, it's so evocative of the East Coast, West Coast, Rapper Wars or whatever. <laughs> uh, but we're all working with the common goals. Something I'd like you to talk about a little bit, and we would not be where we are without a lot of talented practitioners, without the work that the organizations have done. And I certainly was a practitioner for seven years mad respect to my colleagues, et cetera. But a lot of the ESOP organizations are practitioner-centric and uh, supported both in manpower, uh, person power, financially. And again, we wouldn't be here without them. But you have a view that we're we're missing opportunities or not having a uh, representation from business owners. Am I right that that's what's driving you? And can you just expand on that? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not what you call a follower, number one. <laughs> and what I what I love about the ESOP Association, what I love about the NCEO are that they are well oiled machines driven to electrify, educate, build, um, contain, support the world of ESOPs, for the most part. And that's important. And it's important to, you know, I think fuel or enable those ESOPs to live in that realm and to educate their people. And one thing Butler Till always does is every year sends a handful of employees to one of the events because getting people to these events roots them in the world of ESOP, gives them an opportunity to learn something and then bring it back to the community of owners. So they serve a purpose to the entities that exist today, the ESOP worlds that are, you know, all the businesses out there today. It's important. It's important to have that voice in that place. What I love about the certified EO group that's different is that they almost work like a good housekeeping seal of approval, meaning that they're going to say, you know what? We want every ESOP that's out there to stand up and wave a flag that says, I'm certified. And you know what? I believe in this model. I'm proud to be an ESOP. It's a different vibe. It's a different purpose. The EOX crew, when I kind of uncovered their mission and found out about them, I was intrigued because it was it was getting to the root of the voice of business owners. Now, the EOX wants to help other businesses become ESOPs and to help them, you know, show them where the education is, show them where the, the legal teams are and the CPAs are to help them get there. They don't want to do it themselves. They just want to promote the value it gives to an organization, to founders, to communities, and to, to I think, state-level and city-level business and uh, government to say this model is like, it's the bomb, like it works. Tracy, let me just uh, point out, and I know you said ESOPs, but EOX is Sorry. also happy to promote the collective. Yep. So yeah, d- d- just to correct that. So yeah. it, it is the bomb. Let me let you get back to uh, 
but we need to get more voices of the business owners. What I found was that at a lot of the events, there weren't enough, there weren't enough me's up there speaking. And the reason I say that is because I believe in it. I want to talk about the business of ESOPs. I want to talk about the challenges I have as a leader, or I want to talk about how ESOP boards are really critical to the success of those ESOPs. So I want that track of learning to be more important. I think that had that been more of the content that first year, that second year of becoming an ESOP, you know, you really get stuck in the legal slash ERISA slash, you know, laws. It's It's a little scary and it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. It has to be right. It has to be correct and proper, but it has to be true to the business owner and to the employee owners, you know, that business. So I do, I do think that, you know, there, there needs to be more ESOP founders, selling partners, selling business owners to say more about this model of employee ownership and whatever that is, if it's a co-op or if it's an ESOP, et cetera. Um, we need to be talking about this more because it's so doable. You know, there should be, there should fortune magazine, you know, East, you know, entrepreneur magazine needs to do a monthly series for one year on all the great employee owned firms out here in the country and how the States value them and the cities value them and the people are benefiting from them. So yeah, I'm a little skewed to the side of certification and EOX. Again, everybody has a role. So first of all, I'm glad that you're uh, skewed wherever you're skewed, you know, as Mm -hmm. long as you're involved. It also speaks to me of some of the challenges. And I think I can say at this point, nobody's a bigger fan of employee ownership than I am. You know, I just, I I love it. We currently have about 6,200 ESOPs in the United States. When Lewis Kelso, who's kind of the father of ESOPs, wrote his book in 1996, I think there were about 7,000. So we're also in a track where if you're a talented ESOP professional, you're busy. The pipeline certainly were thrown askew with COVID, but I understand that's now broken through. There's a lot of stuff going on, but we're working backwards. So partly for me, Tracy, the clearly we're not saying the right things to the right audience or there would be a lot more of this. So you're talking about finding one more voice and using that strongly to try and grow. Yeah, I'm totally inspired by the fact that colleges and universities are now starting to have centers to educate their employee, or excuse me, their students, their their corporations that are partnering with them, their members, if you will. I'm jazzed by that because the voice inside of business schools is changing. The voice um, at legal um, classes and, and CPAs and that whole realm of influencers need to be trained on ESOPs and employee ownership in general because it's such a valid solution. Our CPA, whom I love dearly, and I still use him for my personal taxes, um, told us we were leaving money on the table and like, forget the ESOP thing. Don't, you know, don't go that route. Well, we need more people to be brave enough to say there is a model. And hey, Joe or Mary or whomever, 
there is a solution here that I want to bring up to your, you know, for your strategic planning and for your secession plans. It needs to be a broader commentary. It needs to be a broader uh, term. It needs to be better understood to a broader audience. And if we keep talking to ourselves, it's not enough. Tracy, speak to something that I put in the category of kind of myth-busting a little bit, okay. and or at least clarifying. You're absolutely correct that you leave a little bit on the table, quote-unquote, if you're selling your business to an ESOP or co-op collective. But it's in the context of, are you the type of shareholder who wants to wring every last penny out of your company before you sell it? At which point, absolutely, you're leaving things on the table. And I say this as an ESOP trustee where I negotiated the sale of companies quite a bit. But a lot of the employee owners are not just people with good hearts. It's not just, oh, I feel good and left 50% on the table. What they realize is if their value is $30 million, uh, first of all, they might be able to sell it to private equity for $40 million and your name's coming off the door, your team is being described. I don't want to tell you the horror story. You know them, but yeah. that's the fear. Yeah. But it's the, maybe you could sell it for $32 million. The ESOP will only give you $30 million. We're not talking about, yes, that's serious money. It's not for me to say. But in the context, do you have any sense that you weren't fairly compensated for all of your efforts as a founder? No, because let me tell you something. I negotiate deals for a living. <laughs> Sue and I were in the, the business of buying media for clients and brands, you know, millions of dollars. You don't think for a minute I didn't look over those numbers with a fine-tooth comb? You don't think I didn't give that thought? You definitely give it thought. But what's most important is fairly compensating yourself is what's important. Fairly compensating yourself and providing for 175 people to get a paycheck healthcare, more coin in their pocket so that they too, who helped me grow my business, can walk away with confidence and um, influence and ability to uh, financially have the future of their dreams. That to me is incredible. And you're right. One of the biggest things that to me, it's about the people, but the biggest aspect of that whole scenario was I would never be able to live with myself had a company come in and cut it and hacked it and done what they did or what they do. I couldn't have lived with it. I wanted the community to have what it had. And in the media field, that's what would have happened. <laughs> you know, that, that happens all the time. I had Tracy, at the risk of telling another anecdote, but I had a client when I was a trustee, manufacturing company in Indiana, two brothers were the second generation, and they sold to an ESOP, and it was probably the most poignant moment I had as a trustee. We go out, and we have the uh, due diligence meeting, I assume, and these guys, again, sold the business for millions, but they left stuff on the table, and these folks actually left a little bit more. Their approach was every decision they could make benefited the ESOP a little bit. So, so there was a little bit of altruism. But we get the tour of the facility that we get at every meeting, and I'm standing outside with, with one of the second-generation founders, and the town is a small town in Indiana, and it almost had dust balls running through it. Yeah. You could just tell it had its highlights in the 60s and 70s, and the town is in really tough shape. And he said, Brett, 
I could have sold this business to a dozen other people and all of these jobs would have gone and my town can't afford that and tears are running down his cheeks. So I just wanted to, like I said, address the myth a little bit of if you want to ring every last dollar, employee ownership is not for you. But if you assign goodwill and value to saving towns, saving companies, and saving your own legacy, your name stays on Butler Till, there's value in that whether you've left money on the table or not. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I, I don't. I totally agree. And I don't know. I think it's it might be Mark Cuban or maybe um, others in the business world who give thought to, you know, this is about people taking control of their destiny and really making, you know, their value a stamp on the communities in which they live. They're driving and working towards, you know, their futures and not tapping into state money because they need it or not going on unemployment because they need it. This is really being responsible and involved as an employee owner, right? To make a difference and to have that difference and to have that power and that feeling that, you know, as a group, sure, but collectively, you know, this this employee ownership thing is a is a very good solution. Tracy, let me just expand on that for a moment and say it's very good for the company, which is good for the community, which exactly. is good for the state. It's it's Absolutely. the entire ecosystem. Yes. Let me ask Tracy for your help with uh, a mini cast. You and I are recording this on January 21st. There was an inauguration yesterday that people might have heard about. And without talking politics at all, Mm -hmm. and you just covered about some of the important themes of EO, the word of the week is unity. Mm -hmm. And I keep thinking back to when I was a GM of a furniture company in the 80s when I was in my mid-20s. I wasn't in my 80s. And the warehouse guys were at war with the sales reps and it was turf and who's saving the company. So when I hear unity, it's all the pieces. Can you share a little bit about what the call for unity means to you in the employee ownership context? Yeah, uh, for me anyway, I think that there's so many good groups out there um, who are doing independently good work for the right reasons. Um, I think the story is being told and being supported and being um, elevated. You know, you can't say enough about what NCEO is doing and, and ESAP Association and uh, the new state centers aligned with the EOX team and the certified EO groups and more. But I think what, what we're trying to do is to say for the betterment of this country, for the betterment, betterment of, you know, businesses and employees and just humans, we need all these entities to be unified together. We need the EOX to be a voice for employee ownership across the United States as an option. And we need to funnel these groups into, once they become ESAPs, into the ESAP Association, into the, e, the NCEO, into ESCA, all these entities. Um, so that needs to be a flow back and forth amongst the groups and be supportive. Um, I think then the other end of that is on the city and state and, and national level is to you know have government endorse it, the small business associations, the chamber of commerce, the 
the other associations aligned to businesses, you know, if they're builders or plumbers or whatever they are, it doesn't have to be service and it doesn't have to be manufacturing. So unity to me is about building this ecosystem, as you say, and doing it with the right mission and fearlessly together. That's unity. I think that's great, Tracy. And I was trying to in my mind, apply your example to the metaphor for the company. And and we in employee ownership, our favorite metaphor is the pie. We share the pie, we grow the pie, et cetera. And if we look around the country and we tie it to ESOP Association and NCO and, and ESCA as well, it would be akin to, hey, we are the employee ownership organizations, we are the pie, and we're going to fight over the pie. What you're saying is, as other organizations proliferate, including ones that haven't been thought of yet, of which I will support, it is all of that's going to help to grow us all together. It's going to make the employee ownership pie together. And so for me, first of all, the unity, boy, if we can knock down the temperature in anything, employee ownership, the country, we will feel better but if we're working in this unity, we're growing the pie significantly and everybody gets a piece. Yeah, I think, you know, we all need to sit down at a big communal table and have share a meal and, you know, just remember what the outcome's all about. I think that is a great idea. Tracy, is there anything you were hoping to share with us today that I did not give you a chance to? Oh, Lord. You know, no, but I've got a big, I'm going to get my cheerleading sweater on. I'm going to get, you know, EO right on it. And um, I'm going to be really, really helping in any way I can promote the idea, promote the opportunity and just encourage people to consider it at least as they move forward in their secession plans. Well, I, I hope that you are very successful. I hope folks will keep in mind, keep you in mind for uh, potential independent board assignments. And if you don't mind a little self-plug, Tracy, self-plug per se, you and I actually connected on LinkedIn, and here we are a couple of weeks later recording this podcast. I mentioned we're taping it the day after the inauguration because of my schedule. It'll air a few weeks down the road. But there are a lot of voices that are saying very interesting and exciting things, and yours is one of them. And my goal is to just amplify them. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I'm not doing anything particularly special except talking to you and everybody like you, which is my role. So I just wanted to thank you for reaching out. But to say to anybody who's listening, it really is that simple. simple. Reach out to me. And if you've got something that's going on, um, I want to help spread it to the world. Well, I hope you have me back. That's all I care about. Oh, I've, uh, you mentioned two <laughs> things during this conversation that will add to full episodes down the road. So Tracy, you're always welcome back at any time. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you and everything you're doing. Thank you so much. And with that, we'll bring today's episode to a close. We're going through an awful lot together right now. And that's how we'll get through it together, which is in the finest spirit of employee ownership. Thank you so much for listening. This is Brett Kiesling. Be well. We'd love to hear from you. To contact us, find us on Facebook at Kesop LLC and on Twitter at Aesop Podcast. To reach Brett with one T, email brett at kesop.com, on LinkedIn at Brett Kiesling, and most actively on Twitter at EO underscore Brett. Again, that's one T. This podcast has been produced by the Kesop Group. 
Technical assistance provided by Third Circle Inc. and Bitsy Plus Design. Original music composed by Max Kiesling. Archival podcast material edited and produced by Brian Kiesling. And I'm Bitsy McCann.